Bethany and I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon, freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, and their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds. We flashed our cameras. They had their fun, and we saluted them. They were good. They were evil. They were human. They are the Kennedy siblings. This is the story of an underestimated hero. A frail kid who just didn't have it. He woke every morning with a determination no one recognized and carved away at himself, day after day, until he became the man who proved everyone wrong. It was paramount for each of the Kennedy siblings to find a career that was vital within society. No sibling podcasters here. And especially for the boys because they carried the family name. Remember, reputation is king. And this is why Joe Kennedy did not want any of his boys to be businessmen, because it could really only be detrimental to the public perception of the Kennedys. You see, it was doubtful that any of them would really be able to outperform Joe Sr. in business. And even if they did, people would probably just think it was Joe pulling the strings and making decisions behind the scenes. Like we said, not helpful. Plus, why go into business? Like we've discussed in our family meeting episodes, the Kennedys didn't do things without purpose. And what purpose would there be in having any more money? And Beth, do you remember why Joe picked finance as a career in the first place? Yeah, didn't he hear it was the most powerful career in America? Precisely. But that was Joseph P. Kennedy Sr.'s America. This America, the America of his children politicians would reign. Joe thought that his dad's career and Honey Fitz's career were cute on the local level. But he believed that the Great Depression changed America, and instead of being dominated by business, the government was going to be the most powerful entity in the country moving forward. And the Kennedys were going to be in control. It sounds so, so power-hungry, and it was, But the Kennedys did also have a huge desire to contribute, to actually help others. They wanted the power, and they wanted to do something with it. And to add to the pressure, Jack also felt that everyone was counting on him to carry his brother's legacy. 
In August 1946, Jack's former headmaster, George St. John, wrote to Rose and said, quote, See Jack never forgets he must live Joe's life as well as his own. And later that month, Joe Sr. wrote to a friend, quote, Jack is very thin, but is becoming quite active in the political life of Massachusetts. It wouldn't surprise me to see him go into public life to take Joe's place. But Jack was not just going into politics because Joe Jr. left a void. His brother's death burdened him with a, quote, unnamed responsibility to his family, he wrote to Lim. But he was also still the rebellious punk that craved independence and autonomy. Joe Sr. wasn't even sure that Jack was cut out for the job. He said, looking back, that his oldest son, quote, used to talk about being president someday, and a lot of smart people thought he would make it. He was altogether different from Jack, more dynamic, more social, and easygoing. Jack, in those days back there, when he was getting out of college, was rather shy, withdrawn, and quiet. His mother and I could not picture him as a politician. We were sure he'd be a teacher or a writer. Now, Jack wasn't going so far as to say he would be able to be president, like everyone thought of Joe Jr. But if he was going to dedicate his life to politics, he wasn't just going to settle for mayor of Boston like his grandpa, Honey Fitz. So he decided he would be the first Kennedy to become a congressman. I grabbed a little interview from somebody who knew Jack at the beginning of his political career to kind of explain what he was like. This is an interview with Mark Dalton for the JFK Library, August 4th, 1964, Boston, Massachusetts. Martin, the interviewer, asks, Now, what type of a campaigner would you say Jack was? Was he shy? Was he introverted when he started out? Dalton. Yes, he was. There's no doubt about that. He did not seem, and this is true, to be built for politics in the sense of being the easygoing, affable person. He was extremely drawn and thin. You know, there's no question about that from a physical standpoint. Yet, deep down, he was an aggressive person. But he was always shy. He drove himself into this. And as a worker and as a campaigner, he went day and night and forced himself to meet people. It must have been a tremendous effort of will. This same quality came out later, all through his career. He was a great campaigner in the sense that he worked day and night to win and went out to meet people. He was not the ordinary type of campaigner in the sense that he was not affable and easygoing, and certainly was not a speaker. It's so interesting to me thinking about Jack as a shy, like withdrawn person. He seems like the outgoing, like social one, but I guess just compared to his brother and compared to Joseph P. Kennedy, he probably was a lot more reserved. But I feel like with his best friends, like with Kick and with yes. Lem, he's like such a like funny, like they describe him as such a playboy, just like charismatic person. But he was probably only like that with his really close friends. For sure. And maybe he was also more confident in like comedy and he knew he was funny. He knew he had a good personality, but maybe he wasn't so confident in academics because Joe Jr. had always outshined him. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he wasn't naturally super smart. Yeah. So when he was in those sort of settings, He was more uncomfortable and less sure of himself. Exactly. He was not comfortable with public speaking. But Lem Billings, his best friend, saw something in him that no one else did. Quote, A lot of people say that if Joe hadn't died, that Jack might never have gone into politics. I don't believe this. Nothing could have kept Jack out of politics. 
I think this is what he had in him, and it just would have come out, no matter what, knowing his abilities, his interests, and background. I firmly believe that he would have entered into politics even if he'd had three older brothers like Joe. A friend of Kicks remembered, quote, He asked every sort of question of what were the pressures, what were the forces at work, who supported what, and you could already see that this young lieutenant was political to his fingertips. He seemed so young, but with an extraordinarily well-informed interest in the political situation he was seeing. But Jack, like his dad, was not too sure he was capable of pulling it off. First, his health was an actual major concern, even in Jack's eyes. He was unsure that Americans would trust him with representing them when he was so visibly unwell. One of the veterans that served with Jack said, quote, I was as thin as I could be at the time, but Jack was even thinner. He was actually like a skeleton. His taxing daily routine at the time made his symptoms even more severe. Fatigue, nausea, vomiting, and the deterioration of his bone mass. Running for political office would also mean a ton of days out on the road, talking to people, going to events, networking, and a more sedentary career path, I would think would have been obvious. But not for Jack. The other thing about politics that made Jack think twice was the fact that he hated fake niceties and pretending like you're all friends just to gain some social clout. He was charming, but he was not a honey fits. That was Joe Jr.'s thing. He could do that if he needed to, but Jack, quote. As far as backslapping with the politicians, I think I'd rather go somewhere with my familiars or sit alone somewhere and read a book. Jack Kennedy. And about him being a public speaker, people described his speeches as stiff and wooden. His family tried to help him, naturally. Once, while Jack was giving a speech, his sister Eunice was noticeably mouthing the words back at him as he spoke from the audience. Afterward, Jack told her, quote, Eunice, you make me very, very nervous. Don't ever do that to me again. Eunice replied, Jack, I thought you were going to forget your speech. The dad was a bit more gentle in his encouragement. Eunice remembered, quote, Many a night when he'd come over to see daddy after his speech. He'd be feeling rather down, admitting that the speech really hadn't gone very well, or believing that his delivery had put people in the front row fast asleep. What do you mean? Father would immediately ask. Why, I talked to Mr. X and Mrs. Y on the phone right after they got home, and they told me they were sitting right in the front row and that it was a fine speech. And then I talked to so-and-so, and he said, last year, the speaker at the same event had 40 in the audience, while you had 90. And then, this was the key. Father would go on to elicit from Jack what he thought he could change to make it better next time. I can still see the two of them sitting together, analyzing the entire speech and talking about the pace of delivery to see where it worked and where it had gone wrong. Confidence is everything. Joe Kennedy knew that. It's moments like this that make me so confused about Joe's motives. I can't decide how much of his motivation came from wanting power and being sort yeah. of like narcissistic versus how much he just was such a good dad, cared about his kids and wanted them to go off and contribute to society in an exceptional way. Also, I'm just tired 
I'm tired just listening to you talk just about that. Wait, okay. It's like college, but never in like forever. You're just in. Yeah, studying. you have you have to actually want to be a better speaker, because like you said, he is working on his evenings and his weekends, weekends. and. It's just so much extra oh added effort that he doesn't need to be doing. No. And he's not getting paid for either, really. No. He could literally just go get a different job. Yeah. Like a better paying job. Well, he, yeah, he probably wasn't getting paid at all. I mean, at this point, he's not elected to anything. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> and the last real problem that Jack Kennedy had was his lifestyle. No one was quite confident that he could discipline himself enough to keep it all together. One critic wrote to him, quote, you must organize yourself first and your campaign second. A bank official wrote to him, quote, You cannot run a campaign for Congress on a fraternity brotherhood basis. I was shocked this a.m. when you answered the phone. Our original meeting was for 10 o'clock, and you moved it up to 11 o'clock. Okay. At 11.45, I called you. In business and politics, we have to break many dates, but we always promptly call and say we cannot be on time or we cannot keep the appointment. In this case, it was not important, but in others, you will lose contact and friends. While Jack was trying to figure out if he wanted to go into politics for real or not, Joe Sr. was hard at work setting the scene. Quote, I just called people. I got in touch with people I knew. I have a lot of contacts. I've been in politics in Massachusetts since I was 10. Not everybody was excited about a Kennedy running for office, though. One newspaper, the East Boston Leader, was unamused and published this. Congress seat for sale. No experience necessary. Applicant must live in New York or Florida. Only millionaires need apply. And it is a Pretty freaking impressive that he was eventually able to pull it off because he's a Harvard graduate, part of one of the wealthiest families in America, and trying to win an election in Boston, a city full of blue-collar workers, and I don't think he even lived there full-time. These are truck drivers, fishermen, waitresses. What the heck does Jack Kennedy know about what they need? But according to one of Jack's supporters, quote, Compared to the Boston Irish politicians we grew up with, Jack Kennedy was like a breath of spring. He never said to anybody, how's mother? Tell her I said hello. He never even went to a wake unless he knew the deceased personally. Jack was authentic. For a politician, he was one of a kind. And he really took the whole idea of address the elephant in the room and ran with it. Once at a debate, Jack said, quote, I seem to be the only person here tonight who didn't come up the hard way. All of the other politicians had much more humble beginnings and would have fit in naturally in a way that Jack just didn't. So he faced it. Jack laced up his boots and started hitting the streets. He was out of bed by 6.15 to 6.30 in the morning and out on the street by 7. He went to saloons, barbershops, pool halls, restaurants. He talked to men and women, waitresses, cab drivers, postmen. He went to the factories and the docks. He stood on street corners. He would even get on the trolley and just ride it back and forth, walking the aisles, shaking people's hands, and introducing himself. This is a lot for a perfectly healthy person. But Jack was not a healthy person. Once he got back from the war... I mean, 
The doctors eventually diagnosed him with Addison's disease, which means that your body isn't producing enough hormones like cortisol, and so it makes your whole body really, really weak. He also had an ulcer and osteoporosis, and the steroids he was taking were causing the bones in his spine to wear away and shrink over time. He was a mess. People started noticing that he had bulging eyes and either a pale gray or yellow complexion, depending on the day, and a limp that was becoming harder and harder to disguise. On normal days, he wore a canvas-covered steel back brace every day, but to get through these long days on his feet during his campaign, he would add an ace bandage wrapped in a figure eight through his legs and around his hips to try to give his back more support. And just to further paint the picture of the level of pain and struggle, on these campaign days, he would climb up and down, up and down, flights and flights of apartment stairs to knock on all the doors and shake all the hands because he is Jack Kennedy. He wouldn't dream of sticking to the street corners, lakes, and rivers that he's used to. Sorry, I had to. So he literally had to grab his knee with two hands, swing one leg up to the step in front of him, then grab the handrail, hoist himself up with his upper body strength, then grab the other leg, swing that leg up onto the next step, grab the handrail, hoist himself up, pull the other leg, all the way up, flights and flights of stairs that he didn't technically need to be climbing. And you know what his dad said? (laughs) Quote, I would have given odds of 5,000 to 1 that this thing we are seeing could never have happened. I never thought Jack had it in him. The expectation from his family was that Jack wouldn't actually do anything because his health was so poor. How could he? I honestly don't even blame his family. He couldn't even make it through a semester at college without being hospitalized. But then again, he already proved how tough he was when he put himself through boot camp before yeah. boot camp, before going to the war, before doing all of that. So come on. Jack's got it. Oh, and keep in mind, this is for Congress, not to become the president. So obviously, Joe Sr.'s money afforded Jack's campaign a whole entire public relations firm. So they had billboards, subway ads, newspaper ads, radio segments, mail adverts, Kennedy for Congress, painted Boston. They also hosted a black tie event at the Hotel Commander in Cambridge. They sent out engraved, hand-addressed invitations to meet the entire Kennedy family. One reporter commented that it was a, quote, demonstration unparalleled in the history of congressional fights in this district. Of course. The evening house parties gave Jack an opportunity to reconnect with his sisters, Eunice, Pat, and Jean, who were four, seven, and 11 years younger than him. So at the time, they would have been 25, 22, and 18. Because Jack was so much older, 29 at this time, and had been away at boarding school at Choate for a lot of their childhood and then went away to Harvard and then was in the Navy while they were still growing up, Jack wasn't as close to them as he had been to Joe Jr. and Kick. And at this time, Bobby was 21 and Ted was only 14. So they weren't very close to Jack up until this point either. The boys weren't as involved in the evening house parties as their sisters, but Jack's political career would eventually give them the opportunity to become much closer as well. All the hard work and family efforts paid off 
and Jack won his seat in the House of Representatives. But we know the Kennedys. Congress was a celebration for sure, but it wasn't that big of a deal. It was only the beginning. The Kennedys were always running for the next job. The 1946 campaign PR director said, I think from the time he was elected to Congress, he had no thought but to go to the Senate as fast as he could. Arthur Crock. Jack was still very much under his family's reputation at this time. He was not Jack Kennedy. He was A. Kennedy. In February 1947, when he gave an interview to a Washington journalist who told him it was nice to meet Kathleen's brother, Jack replied, quote, For a long time, I was Joseph P. Kennedy's son. Then I was Kathleen's brother. Then Eunice's brother. Someday, I hope to be able to stand on my own feet. That is wild. I, I like, cannot picture that at all. Like, Jack Kennedy is no one. He's just part of a family who is somebody, you know? Yeah. But that his sisters were, were more famous yeah. than him. So Jack is turning 30 in 1947. He still looks and acts like a young bachelor. He wore rumpled jackets and oversized sweaters. The expensive tailored suits that we see in photos, he only wore to important events or to Congress, and some say he didn't wear them as often as he should have. He and Eunice shared a rented three-story townhouse where they also had two other roommates, one of which was a family cook, Margaret Ambrose, and the other roommate, Billy Sutton, was a friend who was also in politics and he helped Jack with his campaigns. That fact is also crazy to me because I would not ever think with how rich Joe was. Right. Why in the world would they be sharing an apartment as like 20, 30 year olds? Yeah. Not as 18, I mean, 19 year olds. I would love to share an apartment with you if I was single, but like a, a dude. And Eunice sharing is a with lot your younger. Sister, not sharing with like roommates, sharing with your little sister. <laughs> Bizarre to me. They're just, there's just some things about them. I'm like, you're just not a normal They family. just don't care. Yeah. They're like, we're going to do whatever we want to do. And it's like that whole thing. They were just like barefoot and dirty running through the city, <laughs> like not caring. Every time you say them. that, it kills me. I'm pretty sure you're the one who said barefoot and dirty. dirty. <laughs> but it is. It's that same like oxymoron mm-hmm. thought. They're so confident they didn't mind being... It's like they cared about image so much, but at the same time, didn't give a crap. Mm -hmm. Sutton, one of the roommates, recalled, quote, People were always coming and going, like a Hollywood hotel. The Ambassador, Rose, Lem Billings, Torby, anybody who came to Washington. You never knew who the hell was going to be there, but you got used to it. Because of this, Jack had few close friends with how close he was with his entire family, plus his best friend, Lem Billings, he didn't need much else. He was very social. He would go out and had lots of acquaintances, but he didn't have many other intimate relationships. Okay, since everyone seems like they are loving our Enneagram (laughs) talk, I'm just going to interject here and say that Cassie and I think that Jack is a seven wing six. Mm -hmm. So a six is a loyalist, and that's where he gets his more like shy, reserved, his like Inner group circle. of people yeah. he's like diehard for. And then other people he's very skeptical. Mm-hmm. And then the seven in him is like the kind of like wilder side. Mm-hmm. Just like here to have a good time. Right. All the frumpy clothes, the messy room, all of that is very seven behavior. Quote. Jack liked girls. 
a fellow congressman remembered. What did we say about he's here to have fun? Jack liked girls and girls liked him. He just had a great way with women. He was such a warm, lovable guy. He was a sweet fella, a really sweet fella. Most of Jack's love affairs were one-night stands with airline stewardesses and secretaries. Some people believed that he was a narcissist and that his endless conquests were a cry for help, an attempt to feel something. I'd say it's likely that his mother's detachment and his dad's narcissistic tendencies were the source of this behavior. It's confusing because they were both so involved in the kids' lives, but it seems like both of them at times would have tendencies to be emotionally unavailable with the whole not even freaking telling each other when things went wrong as to not ruin part of their trip. Now, tell me if this is not a freaking deja vu trip or if this is a deja vu trip. Jack Kennedy would bring a girl home from a date at night and then in the morning, an entirely new girl would come down for breakfast. Now, who the heck does that sound like? Perhaps another Jack? Perhaps Black Jack? Jackie's father? Kennedy family biographers Peter Collier and David Horowitz say that these affairs were, quote, less a self-assertion than a search for self an existential pinch on the arm to prove that he was there. A friend asked him why he was acting like that and why he was running so hard from real relationships. He took a minute to answer and then finally said, quote, I don't know, really. I guess I just can't help it. And the friend said that he looked like a little boy about to cry. It could have also been the impending mortality hanging over his head. He was diagnosed as maybe about to die almost his entire life. In 1947, so this would be right at the beginning of his political career, right after he was elected to Congress for the first time, a priest boarded the Queen Mary ship to perform Jack's last rites before he was carried off the ship in a stretcher. He was that close to death. And I don't even know why it was this time. And for the non-Catholics in the room, the last rites is a special service celebrated near the time of death where they may offer confession as well. Jack told a columnist around this time that he did not expect to live more than another 10 years or beyond the age of 45, but that there was no use thinking about it. The freaking accuracy. And why did so many of the Kennedys call it? Like, I know prior to Uh that is also so bizarre. It makes sense, but also like who they're, they're all like freak accidents. They're not like, yeah, exactly. Of course, Jack thought he was going to die, but he did not die for the reasons that he thought he was going to, but he always knew I'm going to have a short life. I'm going to die in my forties. Jack said he was going to do the best he could and enjoy himself as much as he could in the time that was given to him. He was also quoted saying, The point is that you've got to live every day like it's your last day on earth. That's what I'm doing. And then, on May 14th, 1948, Kick was killed in a plane crash. But for Jack, Kick's sudden and tragic death made him more conscious of mortality than ever. Jack and Kathleen, again, were very close, and their letters are all very warm toward each other. 
she had a rebellious streak like Jack did, and they understood each other. Jack was devastated. He asked Lem Billings repeatedly, How can there possibly be any purpose in her death? Then he told his campaign biographer, The thing about Kathleen and Joe was their tremendous vitality. Everything was moving in their direction. That's what made it so unfortunate. If something happens to you or somebody in your family who is miserable anyway, whose health is bad or who has a chronic disease or something, that's one thing. But for someone who is living at their peak, then to get cut off, that's the shock. And I hadn't thought about this when I was writing it, but he's almost talking about himself. Like, you would expect me to die. I wouldn't be so surprised. I'm miserable. I have Mm -hmm. these chronic illnesses that I'm carrying around. Why am I still here in misery? And they're gone. And maybe too, Rosemary. Yeah. And Joe and Kathleen were the ones who everyone was just like betting on. They were the most famous. They were the most successful. They truly had the most promise and the most potential ahead of them. And it's like out of those top four siblings, those four oldest, the two that were the healthiest were the two that got killed. And here's a bit more sister action. In September 1951, Jack asked Pat, who was working in television in New York, to set up a weekly telecast. It was basically a podcast on TV or like a mini 10-minute talk show. Jack described it as, Me interviewing important people in Washington about their jobs, etc., and about problems of the day. Which actually sounds a lot like Jackie's journalist job in D.C. right out of college. She would like go around the city and ask different people, construction workers and politicians, just random people around town, businessmen. She would ask them about like their daily routine or like how they got into their career or whatever. But she also remember that one time she asked somebody about Marilyn Monroe, something about would they have an affair with her or something? And something it was like, weird that we were like, what the heck? What the heck? And then also like a little foreshadowing. bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. In December 1951, Jack appeared on NBC's Meet the Press and announced that he was interested in going to the Senate. According to Eunice, Joe Sr. had been low-key prepping and planning for two years already. But now that Jack had officially decided he was going for it, Joe made it his full-time job to get Jack into the Senate. One of the workers during the campaign said that Joe Sr. was the distinct boss in every way. He dominated everything. He even rented out an apartment near Jack's place so that he could have a headquarters to supervise the campaign expenditures and HR and speech preparations. Should Jack appear on TV for this issue? Who should we get him a meeting with? What kind of ads should we run? Joe's hunger to win and his commitment to making it happen for Jack caused him to forego pretty much everything else. He treated the campaign workers really badly. He was okay with making any compromise to accomplish what he set out to do, and the campaign manager that was working for Jack was just done. So he resigned. And guess who they got to replace him? Robert Kennedy was working as an attorney at the Justice Department, but when he found out that the campaign was basically falling apart, he decided to jump ship and go work for his big brother. He was really nervous, and he actually told one of Jack's advisors that he honestly thought he was going to just further screw it up, but with how desperate they were, he was willing to do anything he could to help his family. 
the fixer in the family, the one who knew everything and never minded being asked to share his information. It reminds me of Roy going to work with Walt, even though he didn't know what the heck he was doing and he wasn't comfortable in his skills or confident, but he wanted to do whatever he could to help his brother realize his dreams. Bobby worked himself to the bone. He ended up losing 12 pounds during that campaign, and he didn't have 12 pounds to lose. He was working at least 18-hour days. He transformed the entire organization, and he was able to motivate teams of supporters that worked almost as hard as he did. He took on all of the most difficult jobs that Jack avoided. (laughs) He was rumored to even throw out politicians hanging around their Boston headquarters, stating, quote, Politicians do nothing but hold meetings. You can't get any work out of a politician. (laughs) Bobby didn't take crap from anybody, and he stood as a buffer between Jack and the people trying to use him. Jack was a frumpled, smiling mess. His little brother was methodical, tough, and organized beyond belief. Bobby meant business. He was the runt of the litter, always the first one to arrive and the last to leave, and he always saw those who were working as hard as he was. Quote, 90% of the talk is done by men, and 90% of the work is done by women. Bobby Kennedy. In the documentary Ethel, Rory Kennedy is interviewing her mom, Ethel, about her father's relationship with her uncle Jack and about the legacy that they built together. Rory asks her mom in the film, quote, Why did daddy put his career on hold? Her mother responded, It was a major decision. He had to put it on the back burner. It was a big sacrifice. It was wonderful that he did it. Rory responded. And why did he make that choice? Ethel immediately replied. Oh, because he loved his brother. In 1953, Jack decided he needed one more business partner. Bobby was the perfect campaign manager and had literally everything handled, but he couldn't change Jack's playboy reputation. Only a wife could do that. Enter Jackie. So magically, Jack falls suddenly in love at 36 years old, realizes he's ready for a lifelong commitment, kind of. But we'll have to wait for that story in episode eight because Jackie needs her own moment and her own episode. During this time, early political career, early marriage, Jack was still having a ton of health issues even though his Addison's disease meant that having back surgery may very well kill him, leaving him vulnerable to infection. He was desperate and pretty used to being at risk of death at this point, so he went ahead and he had back surgery. Here's Rose. Quote, Jack was determined to have the operation. He told his father that even if the risks were 50-50, he would rather be dead than spend the rest of his life hobbling on crutches and paralyzed by pain. Everyone tried to talk him out of it, and Joe even tried to convince him not to do it by reminding him of FDR's incredible success despite being in a wheelchair. What I can't figure out is if Jack was just in that much pain or if he believed he wouldn't be able to pull off a presidency in the condition that he was in. Was it for the notoriety and the accolades, or was it for his quality of life, or like most things, a combination of the two? Whatever the case, 
Jack was having the surgery. Doctors believe that the original cause of Jack's back pain was a football injury from his time at Harvard. Maybe he should have listened to his big brother. After the initial damage, it was definitely exacerbated by the whole swimming for hours with a life jacket string in his mouth, dragging a fellow soldier behind him, probably also by campaigning on his feet all day, every day for months at a time, and never really giving his body time to rest and recover. The first time Jack went under the knife for his back pain was in June 1944. Quote, I think the doc should have read just one more book before picking up the saw, Jack said after the surgery. Obviously, it didn't go super well. Jack's chronic pain came back just six weeks after the operation, and now that he had already had surgery and altered his back, he was locked in to battling the pain with medications, daily treatments, and correctional surgeries for the rest of his life. Ugh. Jack's second back surgery was shockingly actually not until a decade later in 1954, and it was a small success. Definitely better than the first one. It obviously didn't fix his back issues, but it did improve them. The issue was that it almost killed him instead. He ended up with a UTI from the operation, slipped into a coma, and yet again, a priest was called to administer the last rites. Those who were there say that Joe Sr. was weeping in front of everyone. Rose said that his entire body was shaking with anger and misery. Mm. He had to have just purely loved his kids because he seems a bit out of control. Like when Joe died and I mean, even when they were really, really little kids and he had no idea that they were going to be able to do anything, he was literally praying to God and pleading, pleading. And it's that desperate moment that he it, it always comes up when it comes to his kids. Yes, it's always with his kids. And whenever Gloria Swanson tried to say something about Rosemary's care, yeah, that was the one and only time that she ever right. saw his anger. But again, the losing the control, whether it's crying or anger, it's always around his kids. So it took Jack two months to recover from the infection. And then even then, his doctors couldn't promise that he would ever walk again. The Kennedys opted to once again move Jack down to Florida to their winter home to recover in the warmer weather. He was still doing so badly that he ended up having to have another surgery in February, and then he didn't get back home to Washington, D.C. until May, and he had the original surgery in October, so he ended up being away from home for more than half a year. While he's serving as congressman? Exactly. And his absence from D.C. was impossible to play off after six months. It's just like, okay, what's going on? Where did you go? There needs to be an explanation. Right. So against Joe Sr.'s better judgment, they had to just acknowledge Jack's health issues. Joe Sr. was worried that the American public would no longer trust in Jack's ability to lead the people or even show up for work with enough capacity to get the job done. But... News of how badly Jack was struggling with his health actually ended up having the opposite effect that they expected. Instead of Jack looking too weak and sick to be able to hold a high public office, Americans saw him as strong and courageous for fighting through such a severe health condition. A man with no excuses. And we know now just how Jack was able to do it. Determination 
a sense of greater purpose, the legacy of his brother and his heart, and methamphetamine. (laughs) Bobby was certainly alarmed and very concerned, per usual and rightfully so. He confronted Jack and asked him, what are you doing? Do you even know what is in this stuff? Bobby may have also picked up a lack of blind trust in doctors after 1941, maybe. Jack responded to his little brother, quote, I don't care if it's dog piss. It makes me feel better. He was always sure to get big injections before big meetings and appearances to deal with the pain and convey the right image. Only Jackie and Bobby knew about the injections. Also, just for clarity, he was not snorting or smoking it. It was administered by a nurse or a doctor through an injection for pain management and vitality. Shooting meth is only the most addictive way to administer it and gives the most intense high, so no reason to be alarmed. (laughs) I'm being funny because of how ridiculous it is. It is not funny. And Bobby, for one, was certainly not laughing. In December of 1956, Bobby and Joe Sr. got into the biggest fight they ever had. Apparently, Bobby had agreed to look into labor racketeering, and Joe had quite the problem with that. While Bobby was serving on the Senate's Investigations Committee and then again at the family Christmas in Hyannisport, Joe attacked him and told him that he was jeopardizing Jack's labor support and, in turn, his chance for ever becoming president. Bobby didn't budge at all. He knew it was too good of an opportunity. We think that Bobby was most likely an Enneagram 1, probably wing 2, because he was highly motivated by justice and by morals. And so for him, the investigation was a chance to extinguish a lot of the corruption that had run rampant in unions at the time. Remember in the Disney Brothers, we mentioned Walt's run-in with union workers and the fact that a lot of the unions at the time were actually run by the mafia. Well, you also may have heard of a guy named Jimmy Hoffa. He was a bad freaking dude. Hoffa had huge political power and was also cashing in on these unions via violence, via the mafia. The Kennedys are famous for taking this dude down. Bobby told a friend in the middle of his fight against these corrupt labor unions, quote, If the investigation flops, it will hurt Jack in 1958 and in 1962. A lot of people think he's the Kennedy running the investigation, not me. As far as the public is concerned, one Kennedy is the same as another Kennedy. Meaning he knew just what he was doing and the effect it could have on Jack's chance to run for president. Which means Jack knew too. And he got it. Against lots of counsel, Bobby and Jack both believed that their involvement in an investigation like this would have more political benefit than risk. And they were right. Whether they succeeded in their investigation and conviction of the corrupted leaders or not, it would tie Jack's name to a moral cause. It also painted a beautiful, black and white, good versus evil picture with the Kennedys on the good side and the corrupt mafia boss politicians on the other side, namely Dave Beck and Jimmy Hoffa. Besides, any press is good press, right? 
Cornelius Neil Gallagher worked closely with the Kennedys, and he remembered this from Bobby. Quote, Never mind what the law says. Just find a way to get him. Somebody also in the Bobby for President documentary said, Oh, yeah. If Bobby didn't have somebody to put in jail, he would have put Rose in jail, <laughs> aka his mom. Like someone was going down for this. Somebody's got to answer. There's a lot of evil in the world. During 1957 to 1958, Jack's public persona and popularity was growing rapidly. He became a new breed of politician, the celebrity politician, known just as well for his good looks and charm as for his political opinions and accomplishments. One journalist said it perfectly, quote, He's the only politician a woman would read about while sitting under her hairdryer. <laughs> Robert Dalek wrote in his book that a high school newspaper editor was interviewing Jack in 1957 and asked him, quote, Do you have an in with life? The magazine. Jack replied, No, I just have a beautiful wife. And this matches up with what we talked about in the Bouvier episodes. Jackie was this same new breed. She was the first to bring celebrity, style, and glamour to the position of the first lady. But we're not quite there yet. In the fall of 1959, Joe Kennedy told reporters, quote, Jack is the greatest attraction in the country today. I'll tell you how to sell more copies of a book. Put his picture on the cover. Why is it that when his picture is on the cover of Life or Red Book, they sell a record number of copies? You advertise that he'll be at a dinner and he will break all records for attendance. He can draw more people to a fundraising dinner than Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart. Now why is that? He has more universal appeal. But even at the pinnacle of fame and notoriety, it was still all about family. Another journalist wrote years before JFK was elected, quote, When Jack will be in the White House, Bobby will serve in the cabinet as attorney general, and Teddy will be the senator from Massachusetts. And he was right. Because blood is thicker than water. In 1960, Jack did an interview explaining why he would be running for president. He explained that senators and congressmen could work on something for two years and have it thrown out by a president in one day with one stroke of a pen. Being president would give him the opportunity to make a real difference. A difference no senator could ever even dream of. Also probably because he thought he could do it. Especially now that he has Jackie. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion. Some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country. But what did it look like behind closed doors, in their homes, the most intimate moments of their time on Earth? Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, burned brighter, and then 
they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, Episode 10, from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. The main source for this episode was An Unfinished Life, John Fitzgerald Kennedy by Robert Dalek. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download.